Welcome to the show, Brain Health, Unchaining Your Pain. And I am really excited and very honoured to have a very special guest on the show today, which is Mike McCarthy. Mike, welcome. Thank you. Now, for those that don't know Mike, he's a former journalist and presenter who worked on screen for the BBC and Sky News. He's covered wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, he is an award-winning journalist. He's interviewed people from Muhammad Ali to uh, several um, prime ministers in the past. Um, and his son, Ross, unfortunately died by suicide in February 2021. And he now campaigns for better mental health. Mike, I, I just thank you so much. I know it's not um such a long time ago since you since your son passed but um really could you tell me i know that you're passionate about mental health now just tell me what you're really um focused on based on your experiences that you've had um since february 21 well ross left a long farewell note to his family dressed uh, each one of us in turn but he also asked all of us to campaign for better mental health uh, provision. Uh, in his words, he said, it's just not there. And those words are uh, very clearly important to me now and tend to direct a lot of, of what I'm doing. Um, I wasn't involved in campaigning before we lost Ross in February this year. Uh, and it's only since uh, he took his own life that uh, I've got involved. Uh, he'd struggled with severe depression for more than 10 years. And after that, uh, he asked for therapy and he was put on a six month waiting list. And wow. um, I sort of made it my business to try and educate myself about uh, mental health, particularly at the crisis uh, end. And uh, I've spoken to, well, hundreds of people now, mums, dads, brothers, sisters, psychiatrists, mental health nurses, charities, you, you name it. And uh, one of the things that particularly shocked me was to find out that uh, suicide is the main killer of young men under 45 in this country. And it prompted me to ask myself, uh, if that's the case, then why aren't we talking about it? Mm. Where's the political discourse? Where's the debate? Where's where, the action? Where's the action? Where's the conversation? Exactly. And um, again, you know, following that, well, why is it like this? Why uh, are we so silent uh, about this uh, huge, huge issue that takes so many people? Uh, and obviously it's a tragedy whether... Uh, it's a young man, old man, young woman, old woman, whatever. Um, but I think the fact that three quarters of those who uh, take their lives are men, again, raises mm. many, many questions that I'm interested uh, as a journalist and as a bereaved dad to see cancer's uh, answers. Mm. And I think, you know, we, we got connected on LinkedIn and your story really struck a chord with me because um, I'm the next generation or, or the second um, down the line of, of a, a, a dad who, who had death by suicide in their early 40s. That was my 
my mother's father um, and he was called Francis and Francis Barnes. And at that time, it it was not a, a nice thing to experience for, for anybody and it isn't today. Um, but obviously at the time it was considered a crime as well and very much something that you didn't talk about. And what I find really shocking is we're still almost in a very similar situation today that we really aren't talking about it enough. You know, no longer is it a crime, no longer is it something to be um, ashamed of, to bury under the carpet, but those conversations around the feelings that we have that lead up to suicide, the, the triggers that cause us to have suicide, for, which often trauma-related, trauma uh, as you get the build-up. You know, you mentioned that your son had 10 years of depression. You know, this, this wasn't something that just happened overnight. Uh, uh, you know, there was a long lead for him, and I know you mentioned it in, in another interview, he was, you know, he could be considered as terminally ill, yeah, there was very, uh, it was very slow in the action that was taken by the system um, to give him the right support at the right time um, to help him heal from the struggles that we was having. And for me, what I find really difficult when we talk about mental health is that we sometimes think that time is a healer and time does not heal. Um, it's the same situation as if we if we break a leg, the time to go and get your leg fixed is the time that you break it. And you want somebody to look at it and to image it and to understand where the break is. But in the in the space of mental health, we just don't do that. We We often, in some instances and in many instances, because of the way the system works, uh, it's like going to a to a specialist or not even a specialist and saying, oh, I'm sorry that your leg's hurting. Here's here's two paracetamol. Um, take these um, until the pain goes away. Um, and that's not good enough. No, I think you've touched on a number of almost inexplicable issues there. First of all, can I say sorry for your uh, loss and your family? experience in relation to to suicide um what you say about it once having been a crime i can scarcely believe that in my lifetime people who had attempted suicide and uh, survived could then and were very often put in prison punished now, the illegal status was lifted in 1961 and here we are all of these years later still using the language of the dark ages mm. uh, we still refer to it as committed suicide in the same way that we talk about pe people committing murder or, or, or rape um, and i think this is a uh, one of the, the the things that's that is a hangover from those days and i think because of the stigma we've not really moved forward in some ways in many ways we have mm. and the conversation is becoming more open the generations that come along i think are taking it uh, forward step by step but i think if we're still using that phrase committed suicide that in itself shows how far we've got to go uh, mm. moving on to your point about you know what provision there is for someone who's in crisis again to repeat ross struggled for 10 years he tried everything ross was a fighter 
uh, Ross was a real warrior. He didn't mm. like to take time off work. He was very good at pretending for the sake of his family and his friends. He was selfless. Uh, he thought that therapy might be his salvation. And to be told, as you say, I regard it as uh, cancer of the mind. Ross had attempted uh, to take his own life last year too. So he was in the very highest of the high risk categories. And yet, you know, uh, if someone goes through the doors of a hospital with terminal cancer, nobody says, bye bye, see you in six months time. Ha have a few painkillers, you know, we'll see you, we'll see you later. Exactly. And, and, you know, I have to accept that uh, nobody knew that it was terminal. Um, I certainly didn't appreciate uh, how bad things had, had, had become with, with Ross. But I think someone who has attempted to take their own lives before, who's got a long history of severe depression, uh, has tried virtually every medication, uh, then that should... Um, send red flags waving all over the place. Um, mm. I don't think those red flags were being waved necessarily, uh, or certainly if they were, that, that they weren't really um, noticed in the way that they should have been. And unfortunately, you know, I now try to speak not just about my son and the pain that um, that his his loss has left uh, us, his family, with but all of the thousands of people who find themselves in the same space day in, day out. It's an unspoken, largely a silent, hidden pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I think you're, you, you know, the situation that your son found him in is not unusual. You know, the fact that he was stuck on a waiting list. And I, I just love to bring my own personal experience through the COVID situation where um, my mum lost her her husband my dad um, in September 2019 and very shortly afterwards we we were went into lockdown and and shortly okay it was six months but that's not very long in the terms of grieving uh, for somebody whose whose death you wit unfortunately had to witness and um, and she she went into a, a very deep depression uh, and it was, a, you know, in June sort of time, 2021, uh, 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 um, this year, that she said, I don't think I can go on anymore. I, I don't think I can go on. And that was a, obviously for me an immediate red flag. Um, and I, she didn't want to phone the doctor to get help. And I think this is a really key point that, when you're in a very dark place, it's sometimes really hard to admit that you you need the help or even have the energy <laughs> to get the help. And when we did get the help, we were, we were thankful that she was she, the immediate solution, as as is typical. She was put on uh, antidepressants um, and and offered um, cognitive behavioural therapy, but the online version to to avoid the waiting that she would have endured and actually her experience was the initial interview experience that she had to be enrolled into the therapy she and I've asked her permission for this before we before we came on the call is she she found it so offensive 
um, and so uh, invasive in terms of her having to recite exactly what happened that she what she said she wanted to commit suicide after the conversation uh, because because of the way that, that the lack of compassion and care that was given to her uh, on the initial telephone call, which was by somebody who who was who was may have been from a call centre, um, but that didn't seem to appreciate the the state of mind that she was in and you know fortunately for me being a brain health coach we were I was able to help her along and I lived close to her so and she was part of my bubble so that obviously really helped but there are many people that don't have that uh, support and and she ended up the antidepressants made her feel worse so she came off the antidepressants within a month and we I pulled together an appropriate a brain uh, pro brain health recovery protocol that was suited her that that look we looked at her lifestyle how she could improve that we did some um therapy that I've been trained in which helped her relieve the trauma that that she was had been in um and we put her on um saffron which is a, a well known alternative to antidepressants which doesn't have the side effects yet does support um mood, mood enhancement so um and it's a very natural product that many of us you know you can buy off the shelf and buy, buy as a herb in the supermarket so uh, so i think it's this it's just such a shame um that we leave these people who are so vulnerable to uh, uh you know like you say a six month waiting list and there's not nothing to fill the void in between no. to help them, you know, get the recovery that that they really need that is av is available to them. I, I think mental health crisis care is in itself in crisis. I think mm. it's broken, and you will know only too well um, the countless hundreds of people who have similar experiences. I've lost count. I lost count you know, many months ago of the number of people who told me um, that their loved ones had been in what they uh, describe as a revolving door situation. That mm. phrase keeps coming out every time it seems that I speak to a bereaved mum, dad, brother, sister, whatever, uh, that they feel that their loved ones were stuck in this uh, revolving door uh, syndrome. Um, and just, you know, I, I'll tell you about uh, Ross's fiancée, uh, Charlotte, who found Ross, um, found Ross at, uh, <clears throat> in the middle of the night. And um, wow. she asked for therapy herself and was told, uh, we'll put you on a six-month waiting list. And it was sort of dark irony upon dark irony, tragedy upon tragedy. And again... You know, uh, we were fortunate because I put a post to this effect on, on LinkedIn. I was so frustrated, yeah. you know, and scared that history might repeat itself. And, um, you know, thank you to the kindness of, of so many people out there and to the effectiveness of, of LinkedIn that um, Charlotte was offered um, so much help by so many people. Um, but not everybody is in that fortunate situation. No. A lot of mm. people can't afford uh, private uh, treatment. 
and uh, what happens to these people you know I, I, I dread to I really dread to think um, and yeah I think the time has come to shout this from the rooftops I'm you know not ashamed of my son in fact I'm proud of him not what he did but I'm proud of the person that he was and I'm not going to um, stay in some dark little corner and keep quiet. I won't allow it to be swept under the carpet as suicide so often is for, for various reasons. Um, and I sense that I'm not alone in feeling like this. Again, the people mm. that I've spoken to, it seems to be uh, a common thing now for people bereaved by suicide to want to speak out about it uh, for various reasons again to help um, get rid of the stigma but also to you know because it is a major issue it's there we can't ignore it again so many families are touched by this if it's not affected a direct member of the family in terms of suicide or attempted suicide many perhaps most families have uh, some idea some experience of uh, either themselves or a loved one going through severe depression and yet and yet we you know we just have not as a society got to grips with this and it's not just about the individual pain of individual families it is about society because the loss is tremendous ross was a good man he was dedicated mm. to his family he was loving he was kind he was sporty he was active and he was hard working and he was about to get married as well, wasn't he? He was about to, to get married and couldn't because of COVID. Yeah. Uh, he couldn't play tennis, which he liked to do. He was in a tennis club. He couldn't play tennis because of COVID. He couldn't play football uh, yeah. because of COVID. He couldn't take his son, his three-year-old son, Charlie, swimming because of COVID. And um, in his farewell letter, he did refer to this uh, and and one of the lines was i guess this is what happens when you lock someone up for for so long um he felt uh, on top of his severe depression that it was we'll never know for sure uh, and i guess this is an assumption on my part although it's clear from the letter that that covid and, and covid restrictions played a big part on um how he was feeling uh, he'd had covid um several weeks before he he took his own life um and yeah it, it it obviously made a huge impression on him made a huge impression on his his outlook and um it was important to him being the kind of person that he was yeah and thank you for sharing that because i think it's important that people realize that you know, when you're in a, um, from a brain health perspective, when you, when you are, have a, 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 a brain that is in a space where it's in a depressive state, um, which is in essence, the deep limbic system part of the brain is overactive, is we, people often use exercise and sport as a mechanism to calm their brain down 
uh, and to calm that overactivity down in that part of the, the region of their brain. And it's vital for those people that they have that outlet to generate the serotonin that's really important, the dopamine, um, that depending on the, the, the brain condition that they're struggling with, um, to help them manage their brain effectively. And, and obviously for your son, it's quite possible, although we will never know, um, that the lack of exercise and activity has a huge impact on his his state of brain health and brain function um, be, because he wasn't able to give it the uh, neurotransmitters that it needed um, to, to help him function effectively and, and with less depressive symptoms. Yeah, and who knows, you know, maybe the COVID itself had a bearing as well. You know, uh, I'm no scientist, but uh, I, I read that it's possible that people with an underlying condition such as severe depression, that that might have been exacerbated by the illness itself. Absolutely. And, I, and you know, the science from a, a COVID in the brain is emerging, but it's certainly known that symptoms that people have pre-COVID can be worsened, um, particularly if you have um, if it's related to blood flow in the brain. Um, and I know because COVID restricts blood flow and blood flow um, is one of the an important um, brain imaging uh, factor in functional brain imaging, such as SPECT. Um, and we know that um, people who have had COVID have, have noticed symptoms worsening. And we've also seen new symptoms come to bear um, uh, for people that have, have experienced long COVID who haven't had those uh, conditions previously. So I think it's really important that we um, consider how we can help people who have who do have um, pre-existing conditions um, help themselves um, optimise the, their brain health as best they can um, during periods where we're in a in a lockdown situation as as your son was at the time to make sure that they they can elevate their mood naturally such as vitamin d supplementation and making sure that's optimized omega-3 supplementation making sure your omega-3 levels are optimized many people um, have insufficient levels of vitamin d and omega-3 both of which improve mood both of which reduce inflammation and inflammation is one of the causes uh is a cause or or an outcome of, of catching covid um and there's certain aspects within the brain that uh, we see localized inflammation within the brain and and changes in in the brain cells and the neural network the networks within the brain can break down and if if you think about the the male brains compared to the female brains, they're not the same. So, so the male brains have more neurons, they have more brain cells, the female brains have more connections. So one of the um, theories with regards to the reasons why men uh, are four times more likely to um, have death by suicide compared to women is because their brains are wired very differently. They have larger um, amygdalas than women and also that they have less connections so once they make a decision and then then their their decisions are more localized not not globally done in the brain context as women do they go 
they go for that decision. So there's not a debate about is that the right or wrong decision. It, it it's that's the decision I want to make, and then they they go for it. And I don't think there's enough recognition about how we how we address the treatment and uncovering the root cause uh, in the context of the brain health. And I know you mentioned your son did football, which is a um, if he suffered um, multiple minor knocks to his brain, which football is known to cause, that leads to depression. That can lead to depression. It's an increased risk, risk factor for depression. Um, and so if we don't take into account all of the you know it individually it might not seem as much but collectively it can really change the state of the brain um we need to be much more specific and much more personalized from a treatment and a diagnostic approach than having the generic uh approach that we have today because the the way the system works is time is time is constrained they don't take the time to delve into the history and so they go with the with the simplest solution, um, which is which is putting a band aid over a gaping wound. Often um, uh, through the through the use of drugs, rather than uncovering and uh, and addressing the the root cause of someone's of brain struggle in the situation of your son. A lot of that's still really interesting and really informative, uh, and certainly. Uh, from my perspective, as I say, as a non-scientist, uh, quite revelatory. Um, I, I think there's a couple of things as well that I, I'd like to add, if I may, that uh, I think there are uh, all kinds of cultural reasons as well why men in particular uh, don't share uh, how they feel, what their emotions are. Uh, and this is something that, you know, I'm trying to do something practical about as well as campaigning for better mental health provision I've set up um, it's a, a branch of a national charity called talk club uh, yeah. I've set one up in the in my home city uh, in Yorkshire it's the first branch of talk club uh, in Yorkshire and I think it's the first one in the in the north of England and um, this is basically it's a, 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 a almost simple as it sounds it's a group of men getting together in a safe non-judgmental confidential environment where they can uh, and they're positively encouraged if they want to 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 talk about their uh, feelings and uh, emotions um, so that's one thing that I'm also sort of quite keen to um, it, just do my little bit if I can to um, just change the the, the dial uh, a little on um, the sort of cultural aspects of of men and men talking and and, and listening to each other. Um, I, I think we're in about week eleven or week twelve now, and we're seeing some sort of real um, some real progress, uh, and that heartens me. You know, despite. Uh, the, the the grief that we're going through as a family it does sort of hearten me and uh, lift my spirits to uh, to to see for myself just how uh, things like that can work. But I think you know I try not to get too carried away uh, with uh, things like this because I think at a national level. Um, 
we we need to fix this desperately broken service Um, and i think also the research and the conversation around covid fascinating though it is um I think that the figures don't seem to be moving particularly, um, you know, in one direction or another. Sometimes the uh, suicide statistics go up, sometimes they go down. But what it seems to me that in, you know, recent decades, it hasn't changed substantially no there's no step change like you would expect Uh, you know with when we have positive medical intervention that really works we see step changes and that is not happening Uh, you know despite the multiple charities that we have despite the the multiple uh you know statements that are being made about investment this and investment that the fact is is it it is the cinderella uh, in terms of investment um, within the system, yeah. um, and uh, and not enough is invested in that part of the healthcare, and and you know what I think is is really tragic about this is that what they're not seeing is you know your unfortunately your your son <clears throat> um, had death by suicide, but but mental health in its own right is a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. And Alzheimer's disease is predicted to be a huge, huge cost uh, to, to the NHS in the future. You know, we're seeing a 30% increase in, in people getting Alzheimer's disease. One in two people are going to get it over the age, age of 85. Why is that important? Because mental health is a risk factor. And if we don't address this, the issues that people are having with mental health and look at the uh, and look at the upstream issues that are causing them to get uh, into a into a position where they are have experiencing uh, mental health struggles. Um, then we are we are we are not going to address the downstream issues that are going to naturally happen, which is going to be an even greater crisis, uh, 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 you know, on the system that is already broken. I completely agree. And again, on the charities, there are some fantastic charities out there, large and small, doing excellent work. But another thing that that I've found is that it's a very fragmented Mm -hmm. system. Um, The charities, as far as I can tell, don't seem to be speaking to power with one voice. Mm -hmm. They are all fragmented voices. And I think there's a huge need for sort of unity there for, for all of these charities to come together, um, drop any sense of vanity, because I think there is an element of vanity, certainly as far as some charities uh, are concerned. And I think everyone needs to sort of come together uh, to speak to government. Uh, it's very rude of me, but I, I often say that you don't speak to politicians, you scream at them. <laughs> and, um, I, I I went to speak to um, the new suicide prevention minister, Gillian Keegan. Yeah. Uh, a few weeks ago, I um, saw your interview on the on the BBC. I think it was, or was it? I. No, I think yeah, there was there was one on uh, GB News, and yeah, um, I've, I've talked on on various uh, yeah. channels. It's uh, uh, one thing that I've been paid to do all my life is is to talk. So you know that's. <laughs> Uh, may not know much, but I can talk talk a lot. 
Um, yeah, the so and I, I asked her at the beginning, can we not get bogged down in a conversation about spending or statistics? Because whatever it is we're doing, we're not making any real headway. Uh, yeah. There may be some improvement here. There may be some declining there. But those statistics, somebody said to me uh, not long after we lost Ross, I, I, I was involved in a, an interview and I said, uh, the figures speak for themselves. And he rightly corrected me and said, no, the figures don't speak for themselves. Because if the figures spoke for themselves, they wouldn't be constantly high as they are. You know, if the figures spoke for themselves, those figures would start coming down. And I, I think what I always find surprising is they're looking at the, you know, is it up or down? But the reality is, it's not the, it's not the little, we want to see a big shift. Sure. You know? I hope we and don't we're not get seeing that down. at all, like you said. No. I hope we don't get bogged down too much by COVID, you know, important though that is. And we've spoken about it. And, you know, I, I, I think there's far more research uh, needed there. And uh, as you say, we've got to sort of look upstream to sort of find out what, what's creating uh, these kind of uh, numbers. Um, but, you know, God willing, COVID will be uh, perhaps if not a distant memory in a few years time, uh, more of a distant memory than it is now. Suicide, I suspect, will not be changed uh too much I, I suspect the figures will not have changed too much uh, they might go up they might go down but basically i don't think they're going to move very far from where they are at the moment and and you know government mps ministers have to ask themselves why isn't this happening what is it that we're not doing? What do we have to change mm. uh, to, to put this right? Mm. And I think that's so important because, you know, until we look at the system uh, and break away from, uh, like, the whole system, not I'm not talking about the NHS, the whole system, including the charities, including private healthcare, including people like myself, who, you know, who offer who offer a brain health coaching, you know, the whole system that's there that can support people in getting out of a very dark place. And I've been in that dark place. You know, I had suicidal thoughts myself back in 2016 after I got told by the firm I was working for, I had no emotional intelligence shortly after having a miscarriage. Um I was fortunate enough to to be able to get the coaching, you know, and like you say, have the financial capital to do that. Um, but the therapy I was offered at offered at my doctor didn't even um, he he said I was stressed. I, I I was signed off of work with stress, but I was too ashamed, and I didn't want to because I'm in the military um, as well as a reservist. I didn't want to talk about the fact that I had suicidal thoughts because of the knock-on effect it would have had to my career um, and already the shame that had been placed on me by the organisation that I was working in, um, you know, it was just another layer <laughs> to, to what was already a very multi-dimensional system uh, for me in terms of the trauma that 
that I'd been through um of losing a baby and all, all of the the associate chronic stress that I was suffering um with the firm at the at the time so I think it's really important that you know this isn't just about the NHS this is about looking at uh, the system that can help people and the system that is affecting people like your son Ross um, and causing his brain to change in ways that he he's not able to manage it himself or he hasn't been given the right tools or the right education um, to help him manage himself and he becomes dependent and powerless to to a system because that those tools and techniques aren't made available to him in a timely manner um, to help him climb out of 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 the deep hole that he he was in. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I know that there are hundreds upon hundreds, thousands of dedicated, hardworking, professional people working in mental health services. But I think that this is, you know, it's a root and branch thing. I think it's the NHS. I think it's politics and the government. I think it's media. You know, where is the coverage of this particular subject? I think it's education. I think it goes right to um, infants, uh, aged children. Um, it goes right through uh, all of these sort of interwoven layers of society. Um, mm. And as I say, I, I, you know, it's not just uh, an individual family or, or, or partner or whatever. It's not just their um, um, issue. I think, to be honest, I think I, I draw a parallel with um, child abuse. I think 20 years ago, child abuse was in a dark, murky corner and children were told, don't say anything, sweep it under the carpet, forget it. Um, that's the advice that, that was given to children. Then a spotlight was shone upon it, um, largely, I would say, by the media. Um, and now the conversation around it is much healthier. Um, and, you know, children uh, have places to go. They have people that they can speak to. There's a structure there. I think suicide is still lurking in that dark little corner and like mm. child abuse, we have to bring it out. And, mm. uh, you know, my favourite phrase is sunlight is the best anaesthetic. Mm. Uh, and I think we need to sort of shine some light on it. Um, and I think I think you're right. You know, I, I want to go back to your terminology of, of a terminal illness um, because suicide was the end state for your, for your son, Ross, sadly. But he had 10 years of of you know of trauma of dealing with depression that wasn't being resolved for him in a way that was helping him get better you know and 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 you you for me personally you know there's many different root causes of depression um uh, one of which can be catching lyme's disease if you do, if you don't treat lyme's disease if you've been a victim of lyme's disease which comes from deer ticks and things like that um lyme's disease triggers can trigger depression but it it's resolved and treated with antibiotics not antidepressants antidepressants won't remove the root cause so there's so many different root causes of depression that i think we need to spend 
you know, in the out, unfortunately, the outcome um, was suicide for your son. But I think we need to be looking much further upstream so that we don't have these figures, you know, 10 years on. Um, and we're focusing on creating the right intervention for people like your son, Ross, um, that is going to help them um, calm that region of their brain down. And you mentioned that he'd been through multiple, multiple different types of of antidepressants well for me that ought to have been ringing alarm bells in the medical space that there, something else needed to be explored um if the medication is was not working for him in in a you know in a way that was serving him um over the long term and they're not supposed to be used as a long-term aid they're a band-aid in the near term and actually long term um, drugs can uh, re rewire your brain in, in a way that you become dependent on them, much like you may become dependent on, you know, illegal drugs. So it's really important that we we don't just look at, at, at the Band-Aid solution or the, the drugs as, you know, are not the answer. We need to educate, like you said, and we need to equip people with the right tools early in that process, early in that cycle. Um, to allow to allow them to get the right help at the right time, so we so we don't have a repeat that that Ross unfortunately had to go through, and now yourselves have have to gone through as well. Sure, I'm not opposed to uh, antidepressants. I think for for some people they work exceptionally well, but I think too often they're used as a as a fig leaf for a lack of funding or for mm. a, a lack of availability of a of a GP, I think, as you say, it's a, a sticking plaster. And again, I think it's the, the system, the individuals within that system, uh, the, the members of the medical profession uh, are under huge pressure. Um, but I think that um, we've got to accept that uh, people like Ross cannot be told to, uh, you know, just go and, and come back in, in six months' time. We we have to understand the urgency uh, uh, for people like that. You know, Ross was, um, because he didn't want to take time off work, and, you know, maybe that was part of the problem. I think he found it difficult to tell people at work, uh, you know, that he was suffering from severe depression and that it kept coming back all of the time. Um, and sometimes because he was working away, he couldn't get to the GP and he was just summarily discharged and then had to sort of, you know, there was a little bit, it was almost punitive. Um, and he was treated as someone who was taking advantage of the system. But as you've said yourself, anybody who's been, uh, depressed or particularly severely depressed will know that just sometimes picking up the phone to the GP is an effort in itself never mm. mind getting along to the GP never mind getting along to the GP when there are pressures from work uh, when you're working away and you physically can't get to your GP um, I think it's the cruelty and coldness of the system that yeah. lets these people down do you know, I 100% agree with you on that, you know, from my mum's experience. Now, my mum was a nurse. You know, she was a very successful nurse. A sister, she became a sister. She used to work in A&E. 
um, it, many years ago. She's she's 78 now. So uh, uh, that was a very long time ago. And what she noticed from her experience was a total lack of care and compassion uh, from her situation. She found it very cold um, in the way that she was treated. And it made her incredibly angry um, about the situation that, that you know, as I, I spoke to her before this call, uh, you know, she said, how dare they treat me like that? How dare they talk to me in that way? Where was where was the compassion in the phone call? Where You know, in terms of her situation that, you know, she said, I don't think I can go on anymore. And, no, and there, there seemed to be a total lack of lack of compassion in that in the whole process for her personally and you know I can only speak from her experience um but it was really she found it really tough yeah sure I think you know that there are um huge failings within the NHS but uh you know despite everything uh I still believe it's a great organization uh we're optimistic despite everything that that things will uh get better for us it's it's the system uh, the way the system operates, you can yeah, get a, I agree. You can get a very kind, compassionate nurse or or doctor, but I think they're being let down by the um, the, the the broken nature of the system itself. Very often, yeah. Do Do you have a view as to what the possibilities are in terms of change? I have my own personal perspective because um, I do. I agree the system is is broken. It, it's become. A system that serves itself and not not necessarily I don't think has enough patient centric focus I don't think anything's going to change overnight I certainly don't get get the impression um Julian Keegan the suicide prevention minister was um I came away feeling optimistic uh, she said uh, amongst other things that she believed that a massive reduction in the number of suicides in the UK was achievable. Um, that was one of the main things that I uh, took away. I didn't expect there to be any kind of uh, policy change. I'm just sort of one bereaved dad, basically. Um, however, you know, the proof of the pudding will be in the eating. And uh, again, you know, let's let's look at this in five years' time, but please don't let's look at it and think oh that's five more years down the line and still we haven't made a change another thing that i'm optimistic about is that i sense a, a pent-up avalanche of will uh, out there to talk about this um one of the things not long after we lost ross i put a, a post on linkedin just asking people if they wouldn't use the phrase commit suicide for the reasons that we we've spoken about um it's a, primarily a business platform and i was talking about suicide so i didn't really expect to get very much uh, traction with it um but um the last time i looked at that particular post uh, it had attracted three quarters of a million hits i got more well over three thousand direct messages that I've just finished uh, replying to, even though this was months ago. And um, uh, that sort of showed me that that um, things are changing for the better and that huge, uh, as I call it, avalanche of, of will to go forward with this is there. And I think my prediction will be over the next few years, I think the floodgates will open 
people will talk about it more in the way hopefully that we're talking about it now i sense that um that's part of in my job as a as a journalist and you could argue that it's every journalist's job is to you know read the way the wind blowing and and um uh, my favorite word the zeitgeist to sort of tune into the zeitgeist mm. and uh, i think that will is is definitely there um you know we we ross isn't coming back and in some ways I think my survival and the family's survival is partly based around acceptance of the fact that we are broken and will will remain broken to some degree for the rest of our lives. Uh, but that said, um, you know, I do have faith and optimism that that if we are unified, that we can make a change. And I think that change is mm. beginning to see that um see change happening mm. and i do <clears throat> you know i think it's so important and one of the things that i think is really important for people having spoken to people who have been suicidal myself personally and and, and stop them from uh committing suicide that day is is i think it's important that we understand that it just takes a conversation you know it, be there for that person you don't have to say anything uh you know give them a hug if they if they're prepared to accept a hug um but it's being on that person's side by their side um to help them through those dark days um just in much like we have the you know eeyore character um that we see in the winnie the pooh books is the importance of winnie the pooh and his friends showing up to, to visit Eeyore and you know and accepting Eeyore you know as he is and and being there for him and and being okay with with him in that space and uh and being there to have that conversation with him and and help him open up about what's really really troubling him and and it can take time it can really take time for people to open up particularly if it it's been a major trauma uh, and also, or it doesn't have to be a major trauma. Let me correct myself. Is is people often think that they diminish the impact a certain situation has had on them in their lives because they compare something that's happened to them to to something else that's happened to someone else. But if it's hurting you, if if you are struggling with something that's happened to you in your teens, for example, or as a child, or as a young adult and it's affecting you personally and it's affecting how you're able to think it's affecting your mood then you it's a trauma for you and it's important that you get the appropriate treatment to help you unchain that pain uh, and to rebalance your brain and bring your you know recalibrate your brain to a a normal a, a new level a new baseline that is manageable for you and that doesn't necessarily uh, require uh, medical intervention um, it doesn't necessarily require drugs but it, it what it does require is a, is an integrated holistic approach to understand what that root cause is and and I think that's just so important in in this whole process is is to give people that opportunity like you have done in your talk group um is to be able to speak out about what's troubling them 
so that they themselves can help unravel um, what the root cause of their troubles may be. And, and often we don't realise what they are until we have those open conversations in a safe environment, um, in an environment where we have that time to do that exploration for ourselves um, and and the support, the obviously the knock-on support necessary for people that know how they can help the, those individuals to, to find a way through. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't talk about these things without sa sounding like, you know, bumper stickers. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the thing is, it sometimes it is that simple. You know, sometimes it is an arm around the shoulder or even a text message or even better, a, a phone call. Um, you know, I often found as a sort of journalist, I've had to deal with um, and, and talk to people in trauma following, I don't know, you know, um, floods, storms, terror. Afghanistan, you know, oh, yeah. Manchester bombings, um, you know, your background is in trauma from a, a it, reporting perspective. A, a lot of it is. And um, I always used to sort of fret about what I was going to say to somebody who was, you know, recently bereaved because I thought, well, you know, what difference does it make what I, what I say? You know, it's not going to bring their loved one back and they don't know me, I don't know them. But one of the things that we've sort of discovered uh, since uh, we lost Ross, uh, one of the things that's been kind of underlined for us is it, it has made a, a difference, um, you know, knowing that people have kind of got your back um, and that there are people out there who, you know, who, who care. Um, it, yeah. It does actually make a difference. It's as simple as that. Yeah, and I think you. I think what what you know. I went through mental health first aid course as as part of um, going on my journey this year. I wanted to to get the mental health side of the equation from a brain health perspective. And I think what's important in the, in that training is that everybody can have a conversation with somebody who is struggling. You don't have to be a mental health professional to help someone. No. You know, you'll talk to your mate if you're struggling. Talk talk to somebody who you trust, who can help you. Like my mum was fortunate for me, but talk to somebody who you trust, who can help you through through those dark days and help you get the support when you don't have the energy to ask for it yourself. You know, and and I think it, it it's knowing that people I've talk to many people on the on the show who've been through depression and fortunately managed to get out the other side but often their depression is triggered like you say they met males many of the conversations have been males had depression in their 30s to 40s following uh trauma small or big whatever you want to call it but it's massive trauma for them um that happened in a, a, a period of time in their childhood into their early 20s and if if it wasn't addressed it could be layers of little bits of trauma that you know cumulatively added up and gone unaddressed uh, not talked about like you said you know 20 years ago everything got buried under the carpet we're, we're now seeing the this effect of people um you know in their 40s like 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 you said for your son uh, obviously your son was very young but you know we have these people in their 40s 45 who, who at the time that they may have experienced uh, trauma um, 
had to bury it because that was the way society expected them or they had to show up and be strong for their family. And actually being strong is often having the strength to be vulnerable and to open up. And we need to get away from this concept that, um, that asking for help is a weakness. Actually asking for help is a tremendous strength. Um, ask for help not because you feel weak, as Les Brown would say, ask for help so that you may remain strong. And I think that it's really that's something that's very difficult, as you say, from a gender. Sometimes it's harder for, for men to do than it is for women. And also from the societal expectations that they may have been exposed to makes it harder too. Yeah, I think, you know, for all the advances, I think many, many men still see vulnerability as weakness. Um, you know, and I, I always sort of say to people, or I have been saying to them, you know, tell that to the likes of Tyson Fury, you know, a champion boxer, for example, uh, who's proven himself to be one of the physically fittest men on the planet uh, and who is not afraid uh, to talk about the issues that he's had with his mental health. Rugby players yeah. cry, boxers cry, you know, men cry. And um, we've got to... I think as men sort of take responsibility ourselves and um, accept that uh, we do cry, we do have emotions and we should speak about them and and learn very often. Uh, And it's a sweeping generalisation, but very often learn from the uh, support structures that that women have and women develop. Mm. Do you know, I think it's really important that you really touched on the first pillar of brain health, which we have, uh, I talk about the five pillars. And the first pillar is is feelings. And I think we uh, don't take that time um, to check in with how we really are feeling in the day, you know, and I've done this exercise with people, uh, including, you know, liaising with the Ollie Foundation, who I know you know, but when you do the exercise with people and ask people to not write down how they want to feel, but actually ask people to write down three words that would describe how they're feeling. Often the answers are really surprising because we don't take that time to check in with our emotions, to check in with the deep limbic system of our brain or our our amygdala where, where we go into that fight, flight, freeze or defensive rage or, or, or anxiety centres of our brain, which is our basal ganglia. We don't take that time to check in uh, and bring that into our cognitive awareness. And when we do, we often surprise ourselves, actually. In the background, we have this programme running um, that could that may not be serving us. And until we take the time to look into the programme that's running in our mind and checking with our emotions and releasing, helping release in a constructive manner the ones that don't serve us or leveraging them in a way that will serve us going forward, um, we, we are at the victim of, of our emotions almost. Sure. I mean, you know, I'm not the first person to say this, but how much money do we spend on our physical health in, in gyms and the like? And one of the things that we say about Talk Club is it's a gym for the mind. Yeah. You know, allow yourself the medicine of talking about your feelings Mm. 
you know and, and again you know there's this such a sort of um you know one of the great things that I, I would love to see come out of all of this is some kind of parity in spending and attention and discussion between physical and mental health i think it's starting but there's still you know a long long way to go yeah i do, i agree with you and i think what i also feel in this space is that we need to pull in uh, to the conversation our emotional health uh, which is quite different um, to to our sort of perception of what mental health is um, and, and checking in with our emotions and how our emotions drive our behaviours uh, and also to check in with our spiritual health. And the reason why I think that's really important is we we have values, core values and beliefs that we want to live by and we, we have a pur purpose and a passion in life. And when, when those passions, as for your son Ross had taken away from us that can have a huge impact on, on our overall well-being and unless we look at those four quadrants emotional physical mental and spiritual together and in an integrated place because they all influence one another we'll always be missing a piece of the puzzle because we're forgetting stuff that makes up the whole of our well-being uh, and it's it's important that we look at the whole of us, not just look at part of us. Yeah. How, how did we get to this situation where, you know, every night on TV, you can watch umpteen programmes about what you're supposed to be eating, what kind of weight you're supposed to be, how often you should be going for a run, how often you should be going to the gym. How many programmes are there out there? about what goes on up here and there is well, no well that's health. what i want to change mike exactly. there is no health without mental health <laughs> no i agree and i think it's really important that we create that vehicle in the for the general public to show people the different ways in which we can help people with their mind and mindset management um, which is the framework that we use is is to help people learn how to better manage their mind um, and and learn the appropriate tools that will serve them um, and help people who are really, you know, uh, uh, in a place of struggle for whatever reason uh, and find them a solution that, that is this bespoke to them and, um, and works for them. Now, I know we're, we're getting really short on time, but I really want to just quickly dive into you personally, because I know we spent a lot of time talking about your son, Ross, but we mustn't forget the survivors of suicide either it's the parents um and the and the siblings uh and the children um that are left behind um what what do you think needs to be done more there because we we, we have you know there's two issues here isn't there there's the person that that needs the help and then there's the people that need the help as a consequence of the person that didn't get the right support uh, there are so many things, and as you say, we're sort of, you know, we're running short of time. Um, I mean, the very first practical thing that we we noticed is that we got a call in the middle of the night from Ross's fiance and had to drive uh, through the night um, to get to his house. And once we got there, uh, Ross's body had been taken away, and his, his letter had been taken away and it took us four days to to get the letter and anybody wow. who's been in that situation will know that the the one thing that you know you torture yourself with to a degree is why what if you know you want answers you want explanations 
Um, it's not by means of comfort. It's just just plain understanding, you know, to yeah. try, it, just try to start um, the process, I guess, of understanding and, and grieving. Mm. Um, and I think that's a really important point you made there because, <clears throat> you know, they, it's known that people who are the survivors, the grief can be much more intense because you have the layers of trauma and the layers of unknown and the layers of questions around the situation that you don't necessarily have to the same degree um, uh, for other situations that, that may happen in terms of pe people passing. Sure. I mean, you know, uh, as I say, that there are so many, so many things uh, when we eventually got a hard copy of the, the letter, the, the original um, letter, uh, we discovered that there'd been a page missing in the digital version that we received. And it, it, it transpired that it was uh, an exceptionally important page because it was uh, Ross's final words to his son, Charlie. Wow. And um, when we got that, that kind of uh, churned up a lot of the sort of earlier feelings of of grief. The only other thing that I would say to, to, to people is that, um, you know, with, with people like myself and my family who are going through this grief, uh, be patient. Um, it's a lifetime thing, I think. Mm. Um, and... I think none of us want to be a burden. We don't want to sort of go around bringing down the mood, uh, you know, when we meet people. Uh, but we can't get away from the fact that, you know, uh, we do sort of, I think, carry this for the rest of our, our lives. Um, and, yeah, that's, that's about it, really. Oh, thank um, you for sharing that. And I think for... You know, for those that are in a grieving situation, obviously having lost my dad not so long ago is that it's important to, um, like you say, allow time, but but really is to get the support that you need, the time to heal from grief in the same way as hurting your leg is as soon as possible. And if you have the opportunity to get that support to help you through the grief process, it is to ask for help again if, if you need it. And obviously, Mike, I'm here for you to support you and your it, your family if you need any support and anything that we can do um on your journey um i'd be more than more than happy to help you and and any insights that you'd like from a brain health perspective that we've discussed um happy to share some more information i think we maybe have to follow up with a call because we're we're running out of time um i just want to um ask you this show is all about brain health and unchaining your pain what what one piece of advice would you give to anyone who is in a in a depressive state like your son ross um who who is really struggling what would your one piece of advice be to somebody who who, who is struggling in that situation simple keep talking keep and talking. all of the people around them i would say please listen listen and i think it's so that is such important is is really listen to not just what they're saying but also maybe uh, be attentive to what they're not saying as well um and that really active listening and not just what they're saying verbally but also how they're expressing themselves in their in their body language and and behaviors to to really take take in that whole 
uh, discussion that's going on with themselves. What, sure, what, what, and don't what, be afraid to to ask if they're feeling suicidal. Yeah, don't be afraid. I agree. Um, thank you so much for that. Uh, and what would be your one piece of advice as a uh, as a parent um, who who's going through the situation that you you yourself are going through? It's very difficult because everybody responds in a in a different way. Um, the thing that's kept me going, uh, you know, Ross's words in his letter, please fight for mental health. The support is just not there. Um, it's like a, a rallying call to me. Um, I don't think really I have any useful advice and i'm sorry to to say that because i think we're still kind of in the depths of our uh grief uh, i've found that the campaigning therapeutic for myself as well you know i'll be honest about that uh there's a degree of of um selfishness in that i want to do it it, it um speaking to people in a similar situation i think helps a lot um, and everybody uses the phrase, you know, we're all in a club that nobody wants to be a member of. Mm. Uh, we're, all, we're all in that club. Uh, I've met a lot of sort of great people and I always say to them, um, I wish I'd never met you, but I'm glad that I did. Um, and we're not alone. We're not alone. You're not alone. You know, there are so many people who um, unfortunately are in that club. And um, I think the more you can rally the cry, the more that you can get people around you, the more um, you can get your message out, the, the more um, we can make a difference um, to those people and, and, to the, and to the parents and the, and the siblings and all those um, disaffected by it. Mike, thank you so much. How can people rally around you, your cry? How can they get hold of you uh, and support you in your cause? Um, I'm out there on social media. I use it a lot. I think, you know, you may be able to find details uh, with this, I think, if I'm right. Yes, you will. So it will be posted in the show notes. And uh, yeah, I, I, <clears throat> if if you are there any particular uh, links you'd like to share in the show notes that, that go beyond your website for people that, you, you know, support support that you found really helpful? Um, on LinkedIn, I have lots of conversations every day with with people around this uh, subject, and you know, I welcome any contribution or question or or whatever from anybody out there, anybody who's interested in themselves in trying to uh, make a, a difference. As I say, you know, unity is the key uh, to change and um yeah just sort of uh, please let let's 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 talk about this let's mm. let get a real conversation going and 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 mike i'd love to support your group you know if any of your if you'd like me to come to one of your sessions um and to help people learn a new technique to help them really unchain their pain uh, with the struggles that they're experiencing through the mind, mindset management approach that we use which includes havening which is incredibly powerful, um, then I'd be more than happy uh, to, to support you and, and the initiatives that you, that you are um, moving forward. Well, thank you for your support. Thank you for your offer. And thank you for your interest and sincerity and the sensitivity in which you've um, approached all of this. Um, I, I'm supposed to be a wordsmith, but I don't have the words to thank you. Oh, you, you, you know, you're most welcome. And I do appreciate that from the bottom of my heart. It's a, 
it's a subject that's so important to me, you know, as a, a second generation uh, a family member of someone who, who um, unfortunately, death by suicide. And I think it's such an important topic that needs to be continuously talked about um, to raise awareness and make the conversations much more e easy for people to have. Mike, um, thank you for your time so much. Um, for all of those, this is, show is all about brain health and really unchaining your pain. You are not stuck with the brain you have you have the opportunity to make it better. And if you need any further support with regards to the topics that we have discussed, then please do check the links uh, in the show notes and we'll post some um, further links with regards to trauma recovery support as well, particularly to this conversation. This broadcast is brought to you by WinCheck Studios. We are an all-in-one educational platform for podcasters that revolutionizes how hosts leverage content to increase engagement with listeners, downloads, and income. We come together to focus on community, collaboration, and collective impact. For more information on how you can interact directly with our hosts, access exclusive live content with offers you can't get anywhere else from our official partners, join our purpose-driven community by visiting www.winject.com. If you're ready to build a career doing what you love, then we're ready to see you there.